Welcome to Waterloo Festival on Morley College Radio. My name is Sarah Dallas and I'm sitting here with Elaine Andrews of Morley College. And today we're going to be taking you through a fascinating tour of the lost hospitals of SE1. We'll be exploring the roots of the NHS, the effect of bombing throughout the World War One and Two, and um, generally picking up some really interesting facts about healthcare and where it all came from, particularly in this corner of London. Elaine, Welcome, and could you tell us where you'll be taking us today? Thank you, Sarah. We're going to start here at St John's, looking at the War Memorial. Then we're going to continue up to the IMAX roundabout, down Cornwall Road, all the way down to um, the Imperial War Museum, and ending up at St George's Circus. Sounds terrific. Let's get going. So our tour starts at St John's Waterloo by the memorial which commemorates the King George Military Hospital. Elaine, this really is a lost hospital of SE1. Can you tell us more about it? Right, the King George Military Hospital was started in 1915 to deal with soldiers being sent back from the front. It just lasted for four years but managed to treat 71,000 men. That's an awful lot of people, and and not many people know about it, do they? No, they don't. And the War Memorial says, I'll read the inscription at the top of the memorial, erected by the nursing staff in honour of the patients in the King George Hospital, HM Stationery Office, Stamford Street, used as a military hospital during the war. The names of those who died in the King George Hospital are inscribed on a parchment roll placed with the church records. The names of those who are parishioners of St John's Church are subscribed on three remaining panels of this memorial. Sadly, it's very hard to read. I'm afraid pollution has done its worst on this memorial, but you can certainly read the front side easily. And where are you going to take us next? Well, first we're going to walk up towards the IMAX roundabout and look at the former Royal Waterloo Hospital for Women and Children. Great, let's get going. So we are now outside the Royal Waterloo Hospital for Children and Women. Elaine, is it right that this is basically the first children's hospital in the UK? Yes, it certainly is, because at that time, 1816 we're talking about, most hospitals refused to admit children. And I think the infant mortality rate was so high, they just weren't treated and left to fade away. So how was this, um, could you tell us about the origins of of how this came about? So the original hospital was founded in 1816 as the Universal Dispensary for Children in the City of London. Children came from all over London and total attendances averaged 250 a week. By 1822 these premises, which were at St Andrew's Hill, had become dilapidated and were too small. This site we're currently at was found and the foundation stone laid by the Duke of York in 1823. The name was changed again to the Royal Universal Infirmary for Children and again in 1843 to the Royal Infirmary for Children. Dr Charles West was a physician in 1842. He tried to revitalise and develop the infirmary insisting on the need for inpatient facilities. Unfortunately, it was an apathetic management committee. While they agreed with him, did nothing. In the end, Dr West resigned in frustration. Within two months, he had met with Dr Bence Jones, and this was the first step in founding the Hospital for Sick Children in Great Ormond Street. At last, galvanised into action by the idea of a rival hospital for sick children, 
the management committee began fundraising. They got an annual bequest of £450 a year from the Hales estate, given on condition the infirmary would admit inpatients and also treat women. So we see quite a change here. And Great Ormond Street, as we know, is now the premier hospital for children in the country. The name was changed yet again to the Royal Infirmary for Children and Women. This is a bit of a theme with these hospitals, the names keep changing. In 1875, the building was extended to provide 50 beds and cots, and yes, renamed again as the Royal Hospital for Children and Women. In 1903, the hospital was completely rebuilt, so what you see now is a rather beautiful building with some Art Nouveau touches and renamed again to the Royal Waterloo Hospital for Children and Women. When the NHS was formed, it became part of the St Thomas's Group before being closed in July 1976. In 1981, the Grade Two listed building became a branch of Schiller International University and is now used as student accommodation. It is, as you say, a, a very beautiful building with some lovely Art Nouveau touches, um, really worth checking out. Um, how fascinating that we're sitting on the roots of what is today uh, Great Ormond Street, world-famous children's hospital. Elaine, where are you taking us next? Right, now we're going to carry on our story about the King George Military Hospital and we're just going to walk round the corner. So we've walked literally round the corner, just a few steps really, and we're now outside a King's College London building, the Franklin Wilkins building. It's a bit of a noisy corner, a bit windy. Elaine, when this opened nearly 100 years ago, it was the UK's largest hospital, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Um, it had 1,650 beds. At the time, it was reputedly the largest hospital in the UK. And... Um, it now tell us about what its original purpose was and then this dramatic story that happened with the onset of war. Well, this enormous building, five stories high, was originally intended to be a warehouse for His Majesty's stationary office, but it was never used for that purpose and was almost immediately commandeered by the war office to be a hospital. And how did they manage that transition? The building was fitted out and it had lifts, it had electricity, it had central heating, which would have been unusual. And all the beds had to be paid for. This was set up by the Red Cross in the main. The hospital finally opened at the end of May 1915. There had been labour disputes and strikes which had delayed the opening. The first convoys of wounded men were brought by boat train to Waterloo Station nearby. There are actually tunnels built as part of the, off of the warehouse which connected the building to the station so that supplies could be moved easily and, unfortunately, badly wounded men to be conveyed to the hospital out of sight of the public. This huge building was divided up into wards, the smallest being three beds and the largest 65. There were ten lifts in the building and central heating. Operating theatres were set up, a hospital shop and a chapel. Each bed was fitted with an electric light, had a pink and white quilt and scarlet screens. Queen Alexandra was very much a patron of the hospital. She visited, she admired the use of the hospital's flat roof, which a royal academician was making into a roof garden with flower beds and shrubs in tubs where patients could exercise. There are existing photographs of the roof garden, which has little pavilions on top. Queen Alexandra later gave a tripod telescope to the patients so they could enjoy the views further. The views show a very smoky 
and foggy London, very atmospheric. And um, how many men were treated in total? An incredible 71,000 men. The hospital closed on the 15th of June 1919. So the day I do this walk for real will be exactly 100 years. The building was then converted back into a warehouse for His Majesty's stationery office. It's a very large building for a lot of stationery. It's a lot of stationery. Thank you, Elaine. And where are we going now? We're now going to walk down Cornwall Road into the cart, into Waterloo Road, along Waterloo Road and into Lambeth Road. We're standing on the corner of Lambeth Road and St George's Road outside what was the Royal London Dispensary and if we look up we can still see the old sign. Um, Elaine, what was a dispensary? Is that somewhere you could collect medicine from? Well, having done a bit more research on this building, it seems it was a bit more than that, more like a, um, a GP sur- surgery today in that people would be treated here and also at home and treated over long periods of time. And were these people who had money to pay for it or would it be a mix of, mix of patients? No, definitely not. The dispensary's aims were quoted as to furnish medical aid to the sick poor, attendance being given both at the homes of the poor and at the dispensary. And uh, fundraising was carried out quite strenuously to keep these um, aims going. So are we seeing some of the roots of the NHS in, in buildings such as this? Yes, because there was no free health treatment at this time. We're now talking 1821 when this was first started, or in fact not in this site here. It was in a small rented house nearby. And in the first month they saw 122 patients. 20 years later, patient numbers were over 5,000. This gives you an indication of the density of population in this area and the need for medical treatment. So this building, this site was put up here in 1841 and the foundation stone, which is just to the left of the door, shows that it was assisted by the Right Reverend Lord Bishop of Winchester and the stone was laid by His Royal Highness the Duke of Cambridge. And how long did it remain a dispensary? Until 1917, which is um, a fair long time, but it was very obvious that the numbers were dropping. Um, If you go up to London Metropolitan Archives, you can see their last minute book, which runs 1900 to 1917. And in their last annual report, there were actually 12 members of staff here, which shows it was quite a large place. There's one surgeon, an ophthalmic surgeon, six ordinary surgeons, a dentist, a house surgeon, a secretary and a dispenser. This was a, a pretty highly populated neighbourhood. Yes, absolutely. And we've just walked through the back streets of Waterloo, which was full of very small houses. This was um, a pretty densely populated neighbourhood back in the day, wasn't it? Yes, it was. I mean, this area now seems underpopulated in a way because the museum's taking up a lot of space and the cathedral buildings. But there would have been a lot of houses around here which have disappeared. So tell us more. It's it's now um, the royal. It's another school of historical dress. Yes. After 1917, the dispensary closed, basically for lack of fundraising and also lack of patience. There must have been other things going on around here that were helping out. And after 1917, the building was altered and used to treat soldiers suffering from shell shock. 
have not been able to find out much more about this, but it then became an out, outpatient department at Bethlehem Hospital, which is opposite. And this carried on until about 1927, and they saw outpatients, um, quite large numbers of outpatients. And it was actually called the Hospital for Nervous Diseases. The current occupiers have been here a couple of years. They have bought the building outright, from Bethlehem, in fact. And they are trying to investigate what the building would have looked like. It's been very much subdivided, redivided, walls taken down, doors put up. So they're still investigating what the building would have looked like. There's not much left of the original features, but they do have the dispensary hatch, which they have kept. And this is where patients would have come and collected their medicines. In 1930, the London Trade Directory says it's the Elizabeth Baxter Home for Stranded Girls. Uh, again, this is a charity which still exists under another name, and they continue to occupy this until at least 1943, and hopefully they were helping girls who were stranded by the war effort. This mission in particular goes back to the late 19th century, and it supported vulnerable girls who had come to London in search of work. In between that and the School of Historical Dress, it's been a homeless shelter run by Oasis. Uh, the current occupiers, London School of Historical Dress, are running courses here. They have a library. They're using the first floor room, which they think was a boardroom, as their library. And they've tried to furnish the place as it might have been in Victorian times. So it's a very interesting building still. Maybe they've got some older historical medical outfits in there. They have, actually. Yeah, they have. Yes, they've got a little cabinet just inside the door with various medical artefacts, not from the building itself, but contemporary with the building. So they try to create an atmosphere here, which is excellent. It's fantastic. Um, where are you taking us next, today? Well, we're literally walking down this road. This is Lambeth Road still, but there's a sort of sub-terrace off it called Barkham Terrace, and this is now the Churchill Clinic. So we're standing outside a, a very large 1950s building. It looks a little Art Deco-ish. It's called the Churchill, and this was and still is a private hospital. Tell us more, Elaine. Originally, this was a Catholic nursing institute, and this was set up as a private hospital in two distinct parts, beds for those needing rest and a district nursing side, and 12 beds for middle-class patients of all denominations who are unable to pay the fees charged by nursing homes. This basically is a nursing home, but obviously a lower level of nursing home. This terrace was much larger than it is now. The hospital is taking up a great chunk of it, and there used to be a Baptist chapel in the middle. This hospital has been extended by taking in extra houses over the years. And in 1937, a proposal was made to extend it to 50 beds and take over all the houses. Unfortunately, the war intervened and it was virtually demolished down to the ground, including the chapel. So the chapel is no more. It took a long time to get this building put back up again and it wasn't opened again until 1951. And it's a 70-bedded hospital. These days, So what is it today? Is it still functioning as a hospital? It's functioning as a private psychiatric hospital. It's gone under several different names, um, no longer under the um, 
control of the Catholic Church. This is, uh, it was the Gainsborough Nursing Home for short and long-term care of the elderly. Then the Churchill London Clinic, psychiatric hospital with 68 beds and a rehabilitation service for mental patients. The Cambian Group now own it and it is still in use as a private nursing home for serious psychiatric cases. I think listeners will be curious to know your take on why there are so many medical institutes or were um, in this in this neck of the woods. It seems strange because St Thomas's is only just up the road and that's always been a fairly large hospital but over the years St Thomas's has obviously got bigger and taken in all these small hospitals apart from this one which exists solely on its own. And where are you taking us next? We're literally going over the road to the Imperial War Museum. Fantastic. So here we are, we're standing outside the Imperial War Museum. It's simply splendid, fantastic looking place. Um, and a really bit of juicy history here, Elaine. Tell us more about what this building used to be. Well, like the psychiatric hospital opposite, this was actually the public face of madness. And this was an asylum for quite serious cases. Um, first started in the City of London, moved down here in 1807 and it was an enormous building what you can see now looks big but it had a wing on each side which spanned span the full width of this park is, is that the bedlam of literary repute it has been um, recorded in paintings and novels yes, yes absolutely this is the bedlam of everyone has heard of uh, many famous peop people were treated here, including Richard Dadd, the painter, who killed his own father, Louis Wayne, another painter who painted cats, very famous for slightly surreal cats, and the novelist Antonia White, who actually fictionalised her account of being here for a year in her book Beyond the Glass, which is one of the most frightening books I've read about madness. She remembers every minute she spent here, and she was really out of her mind for much of it. So it's a very frightening place. What sort of treatment would there have been in those days, presumably rather primitive, early days of psychology? Very primitive. Um, really not much is known about the treatment. Largely people just kept busy or just locked away. Um, when they brought the patients here from Moorfields, it was barely finished and there was no glass in the windows because some misguided people thought that was healthier to have fresh air for the patients. But within a year, they did glaze the windows. But there are awful things that the uncleanly patients were put in the basement and slept on straw, which could be easily changed, which sounds revolting. All the buildings were designed so if the fire started, it wouldn't spread. This was a huge, huge hospital. I think it's very difficult to even think what it could have been like here very peaceful but inside quite grim I think was this one of the UK's first large mental institutions I think so um, it started way way back in medieval times in fact the original Bethlehem which then became known as Bedlam and this was actually called the Royal Bethlehem Hospital of course the word Bedlam is now in the moved into the vocabulary of uh, I'm having a it's complete bedlam here yes absolutely um, it has been enlarged as well they put in uh, places where the patients could work those that were well enough to work workshops and laundries where the men and women could actually work 
But between 1808 and 1815, more county asylums were built, so the need for this London asylum reduced. So it wasn't used so much as the poorer patients. It became a bit more upmarket, as you might say, and some of the patients were considerably richer and their their, um, relatives could pay for them to be here, as in the case of Antonia White. If people want to see what it looked like in in those days, uh, can they just Google images? Oh yes, lots and lots of images. There was a time when you could go and watch the mad people on Sunday afternoons and it was quite a spectator sport in Victorian times, which is appalling now. And then Broadmoor was built and the more seriously um, criminal cases here were taken there, so it became a different place entirely. And um, how did it end up as the Imperial War Museum? Well, first, a convalescent home was built at Whitley for patients on the way to recovery, but this main part stayed here until after the 1418 war, when the governors decided to build new premises in Addington in 1926. And the freehold of the old site was purchased by Lord Rothermere in 1930. And this public space was created, which he named after his mother. So it's the Geraldine Mary Harmsworth Park. The side wings, which formed most of the hospital, were demolished. So what we see is just a small fraction. Um, the Imperial War Museum took it over and it stayed here and is still here. Although during the Second World War, um, it was actually closed. It was seriously damaged during the Second World War, three bombing raids. So what, what has what then replaced it as London's major psychiatric hospital? I think they all went outside London. There are ones in St Albans, there are two near St Albans, there's one in Surrey, um, huge great hospitals. These are now going out of favour as well and they're being converted into residential accommodation and people are living out in the community more and being supported in their own homes where possible. As our, as our understanding of mental issues evolves. Um, you're going to take us around the corner now to the annex yes we're going around to the annex of the museum so we have reached the final stop on our walking tour of the lost hospitals of se1 um, we've walked around the corner from the imperial war museum through the loveliest square west square and now we're standing outside all saints which was a purpose-built orphanage is that right elaine that's right and we just walked past charlotte Sharman's school which used to be called west square school And Charlotte Sharman is a lady that actually started this orphanage. And tell us more about how she came to do that and and who it catered for. Charlotte herself was quite a frail child. She was educated at home, couldn't really work. But she took a great interest in taking girls off the streets and homing them, which she did in West Square, taking over quite a few houses. Uh, She soon had 13 houses and then rented a square a house called The Mansion, which apparently was nothing like a mansion because it was falling down, and she used that as a school and a home. And by 1873 was caring for 206 girls. The mansion was in such poor, poor condition, it was ordered to be pulled down. So she decided to build her own orphanage and took this site here. The first wing was opened in 1876 and the last wing in 1884 and it remains I think pretty much as originally built. Charlotte Sharman was 97 years old when she died, active to the last in spite of her ill childhood, still typing her own letters. Sounds like a good woman. Her obituary appeared in the Times in 1929 and describes a warm and much loved woman. 
1930, this orphanage was then sold and purchased by All Saints Hospital. This hospital had been founded in 1911 to improve techniques for the treatment of kidney and bladder disease and started off in Vauxhall Bridge Road, moved here in 1932, became the largest urological hospital in the UK with 52 beds. During World War II, the hospital was closed as its staff had been depleted by the war effort. It reopened in 1946 with 32 beds. Gradually, the function of this hospital got devolved into Westminster, but it was still open as a minimal psychiatric care unit with 45 beds in the 70s. It's now an annex to the Imperial War Museum and houses photography, film and video archive. So a building that has fulfilled many different roles. Perhaps the the, the orphanage era was the most um, poignant. I think so. Um, Didn't know anything about Charlotte Sharman before, but it's been very interesting reading. Again, London Metropolitan Archives have a wonderful file of stuff about this orphanage with little prospectuses. It was supported by voluntary donations, but the girls who lived here actually ran it themselves. They did all the laundry, the housework, they learnt to sew, they made their own clothes and were very well looked after. This was no terrible Jane Eyre-type orphanage. This was properly run and the girls were well cared for. And from here they went to domestic service. So an example of successful Victorian philanthropy. Absolutely. And a one-woman operation, which is especially laudable. It certainly is. Well, it's been fascinating, Elaine. Thank you very much. So that concludes our walking tour. Thank you all so much for listening. And, Elaine, you'll be repeating this walk on the 21st September, is that right? That's right. This is part of Lambeth Heritage Festival. And there were other lost hospitals that we didn't cover today, is that right? Yes, loads more, but we didn't want to make the walk too long. Um, There's the Lying In Hospital in York Road, near Waterloo Station. There are very smaller hospitals, like the Hospital for Diseases of the Skin in Blackfriars Road. There's the Lambeth Hospital in Brook Drive, which is part of the old Lambeth Workhouse. Very little of this remains now, but Charlie Chaplin was once a resident here. There's an Institute of Optometry in Newington Causeway and a psychiatric day hospital for children and their families in Black Prince Road. All of these buildings still exist. So lots more to whet the appetite if our short walk has captured your imagination. And all this will, of course, be available on the Morley Radio website. For more events at Waterloo Festival, go to waterloofestival.com. Tickets booking now. And um, thank you again for joining us. Thank you for listening.